Good morning, and welcome to The Light, 88.7 FM Bible Live, a live radio call-in with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina, and for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question for Dr. Brogy, you may call 525-1859 or on your Altel cellular phone, star 887. If you're calling outside our immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line. Maybe you are a first-time listener, and this is an hour-long show together where we open up the Word of God, and if you have a particular question or issue in your personal life that you'd like biblical counsel on, or maybe some uh, thing that you're studying in God's Word and you have a question that you would like to ask, all you need to, again, is pick up the phone and call us locally. It's 843-525-1859, uh, we uh, can be heard through the internet at wagp.net 24-7, anywhere in the world. And we have internet listeners every week who tune into the Bible line, sometimes even from foreign countries, as missionaries write us and tell us. And so that's encouraging to us, and we hope we are an encouragement to them. You can email us directly here into this studio at TBL for the Bible line, tbl at wagp.net with your question Or if you're here in the United States, we have a toll-free number, and that number is 877, the call letters, WAGP 980, 877-WAGP 980. If you do call, you can go on the air live, or if you're more comfortable, you can simply dictate your question, and we're always happy to receive it in that fashion as well. Rick, let's go ahead and get started. I think we already have someone on the line. We do indeed, Pastor. Good morning. Thanks for holding. You're on the Bible line. Good morning. Yeah, thanks for calling. Go I ahead. A, I had a conversation, basically it was on Facebook on Sunday after church, with a fellow who was extolling the virtues and trying to get everyone to vote for Elizabeth Colbert Bush. And I just I let him know that, you know, as an evangelical Christian, there is absolutely no way I could ever vote for anyone whose views were so different than mine, especially considering her views on abortion. And... Of course, you know, one thing led to another, and he was just he was, he was just going at me tooth and nail, saying that I was a one-issue voter. And I said, well, I, don't, I really don't consider that a one-issue thing. Uh, being an evangelical, it's, you know, it's my belief that we have to do what's right. And if we vote for someone whose views go against Scripture, then we are complicit in everything they do. And I'm just wondering if I was correct in that, because I believe I was. Well, it's an excellent question. Let me see if I can respond. I think I was already misquoted from last uh, week's Bible line. Uh, There was a new stream going around saying that Pastor Brogy said everyone should stay home and not vote. It's not what I said, and our programs are recorded each week, and you can listen to them at WAGP.net. Click on the Bible line icon, and they're listed week by week. What I did say is this. Number one, I would not personally, of course, vote for Colbert uh, Bush for several reasons. Number one, she is pro-abortion. She's in favor of the murder of little babies. Let's call it what it is. And she is in favor of homosexual lifestyle. 
that she's in favor of the equal rights for homosexuals. If you watch the debate between her and Sanford, the one debate they had, she made that explicitly clear. So no, as an evangelical Christian, I could not indeed vote for her. So then the second question that came up more last week is, well, would you vote for Samford? And it's a fair question. And I said, people have to do what their conscience tells them to do. And here's my perspective on it. Um, For me, in my opinion, uh, there are times when we need to step aside and let the slightly worse candidate win. Rick and I talked a little bit about this last week. He said, well, so you wouldn't view this as uh, one of those people that you just hold your nose on and pull the lever. Uh, Certainly for a presidential candidate, I would. Maybe a state senator, I would. And depending on the complexion and the makeup of the House, I might. Um, certainly a Supreme Court justice is going to be chosen by a president, and he's going to affect issues for potentially decades to come. Uh, But there are times, in my opinion, where it's more important to punish bad behavior and bad policies than to reward good ones. And if we just continue to nominate and elect rhino GOP candidates, then the evangelical church is going to have no voice. And we say we stand for family values. We say we stand for honesty and integrity, neither of which Samford has modeled. Let's just, let's just face it. He stole money. He used taxpayer dollars. He used your money. He received a high, high fine, the highest in the history of the South Carolina Senate and the Ethics Commission of this state. He was fined $74,000 in fines after he paid it all back. And so, you know, to me, I, I'm very uncomfortable with that. He, he left his station when he should have been there. So, yes, of course, the enemy is uh, hiking on that and promoting that and pushing that. And I understand that. They've got reason to. Uh, but there are bigger issues, too, moral issues. If a man can't keep his promises to his family and to his wife, then what makes me think he's going to keep the promises that he makes in the election cycle? And so he didn't do that. And he's repented of absolutely nothing. He hasn't repented. This is not an issue of forgiveness. He's never repented. He's never once repented of this sin. And so this is the way I look at it. I look at the House of Representatives, and we Republicans have a majority. And I'm not just a Republican, and I'm not necessarily a Democrat. I'm a Christocrat. And if a man is a Democrat and he's straight as an arrow on the social issues, and I will certainly consider him all other things being equal. Uh, Those are important issues to me. Why? Because righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. And so what's going to happen is if uh, Sanford is elected, what we're basically saying in this state, one of the more evangelical states out of all 50 is values really do not matter. It doesn't matter what you believe, how you act. It doesn't, it's not all that important to us. And so in the short run, we may have a victory for a seat, a seat that's going to affect very little in terms of the broad scale of thing. Abortion and homosexuality is not going to be changed over this seat. But if he's not elected, it will send a message 
that people who truly represent Judeo-Christian values are important. See, my hope isn't in Washington, D.C. My hope is in God. My hope is looking to the living God for solutions. So, yes, it would be a sin for me to vote for Colbert Bush. And to me, it would be a gross compromise of my convictions to vote for Sanford. So if I could vote today and I can't because the line's drawn in a way that I can't, I would go in and I would write in. But I would vote, but I would write in. I'd write in a candidate, but I certainly wouldn't vote for Sanford. You say, then that's a vote for Colbert Bush? Maybe. And uh, this is just a short-term little uh, uh, stint. In 2014, this seat will be up again. And certainly, I don't care if it's a Democrat or a Republican, if they represent God's values, that's the only hope for America. That's the only hope for America. We're going down the tubes fast, and more and more, the Republican Party stands for absolutely nothing. Hmm. All right. Thank you, caller. Uh, Pastor, let me just ask you in in passing. Do do you think um, that uh, Mark Sanford was actually doing the electorate a favor by even running? No, I don't. I, you know, I mean, look at it this way, Rick, the National Republican Party, the National Republican Party withdrew all their support of Sanford after he, you know, won the primary. They withdrew it. So the tens of thousands of dollars that they would be giving to underwrite his campaign, they withdrew it. Why did they withdraw it? Because they're realizing that if we have these guys in here who don't stand for really, truly Judeo-Christian values, it means absolutely nothing. And we become a joke because we're so deluded in terms of what we actually stand for. All right. Uh, let's go to our next live caller. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning. How are you? Good. Thanks for calling today. Uh, thank you for answering my question um, in, in advance. Uh, my question is this. Um, I, is it possible for a person to be called into ministry through through man? Um, and and the reason I ask that is, I've, throughout the course of my life, I've had five pastors come up to me and ask me the exact same question. And the question that they ask is, "What are you waiting for?" Um, you're supposed to be in ministry. One of the most recent accounts was my wife and I were on a cruise, and the gentleman we were sitting next to, uh, we didn't know. And the second day of the cruise, during dinner, he turned his chair around, and he looked at me, and he said, God wants me to ask you, what are you waiting for? He said he woke me up at 2 o'clock this morning and told me to pray and fast for you, and to ask you, what are you waiting for? You, you're supposed to be in ministry. So I, I, every pastor that I've spoken to has said that they were called and they literally heard the voice of God speak to them. I myself have not had the experience where I feel God has spoke to me as far as, you know, a presence in the room with me where I would turn around to see who it was talking to me. So is is it possible to be called to ministry through man versus God? Because I know in, in, in the Bible, God has called people to follow him through other people other than himself. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, it's a good question. Let me see if I can respond to it. So I would say yes and no to your question. Yes, in this respect, it is true that in the Old Covenant, under the Old Covenant, that there were situations where... 
a parent could dedicate their child, assuming they had all the necessary qualifications, for instance, from the tribe of Levi and so forth, where the priests would come and dedicate that child to the Lord for his service. So you have an example of that with Hannah. Now, Hannah had other children that were not dedicated to the Lord for service, but she had done that and God had compelled her to do it. And God confirmed indeed that he was the one who had put that in her heart when he himself uh, calls young Samuel to serve him in that capacity. But I would say no in this respect. Um, No one can say, God told me that you have been called into the ministry. And by the way, when God calls people into the ministry, there's not an audible voice. God doesn't speak in audible voices today. He speaks in many portions in many ways. But when people start saying, well, God said to me, and they start quoting God, that's no different from what the cults do. Every cult that has ever existed since the foundation of the church has always been built on some extra revelation that came through some writing, through some letter, through uh, some vision, some dream, where the person basically said, thus saith the Lord. That's very, very dangerous. And Christians, real Christians, sometimes do that. Uh, Well, God spoke to me, and they start quoting what God said. That's extremely dangerous, and it's dishonest. Because God doesn't do that. Now, God may impress someone's heart and burden someone's heart with a a truth, with a reality, with a burden that he has laid upon them. But God's revelation, his canon of Scripture is closed. And if God is still speaking extra revelation, not confirmatory revelation, but extra revelation beyond the bound of Scripture, then you have an open canon, and you can basically believe anything that you want to believe. But God warns with even the close of the Revelation, which is the very last book ever to be penned, that no one is to add or subtract to that revelation. You say, well, that applied just to the book of Revelation. I testified everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God shall add to him the plagues which are written in this book. If anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city which are written in this book. Well, since Revelation is indeed chronically, no one debates it, it is a well-established fact the very last book of the Bible to be written to add or subtract anything from Revelation is to add or subtract to the whole of Scripture. And it's a very dangerous thing to do. God has delivered to the saints the faith once and for all. So we call it the canon. It's from a Latin word that means measuring stick. We have a measuring stick to discern truth from error. And what is that measuring stick? It's the Holy Scripture. So if someone says, well, God said this, and I can't find it in Scripture, and it's adding or subtracting to the Scripture, then um, I have violated a basic principle that runs through the Word of God in several different places in the Word of God, whether it's in Proverbs or Deuteronomy or similar quotations to this. With that said, I do believe that God can burden a person's heart for ministry, and I do believe that mature believers will recognize the giftedness for that ministry. In other words, what sometimes people do, and they may not necessarily be a mature believer, but they recognize, hey, he, you know, you've got a gift, a speaking gift, say, to preach. And God's people are ministered to when you speak in a Sunday school class or an adult Bible fellowship or 
maybe the pastor's letting you preach on a Sunday morning or a Sunday night, and people are blessed and encouraged, and they say, you, you have a gift, you know. Why aren't you in the ministry? Well, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're supposed to be in full-time ministry. In fact, James gives a very strong warning. He says, let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we shall incur a stricter judgment. That, by the way, is totally consistent with what we read in other passages in the Word of God. Uh, Remember those who led you, who spoke the Word of God to you, and consider the result of their conduct. conduct. Imitate their faith. And then of these leaders, these elders, these pastors, he says, Obey them and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you." And so there's an accountability that comes with a formalized ministry. Now, when James says, let not many of you become teachers, how can he make that statement in light of other things that we learn in the Bible about teaching? For instance, there's the gift of teacher, there's the gift of pastor teacher, and those are two spiritual gifts. There's the gift of pastor, which is a teaching ministry. Um, And according to 1 Corinthians chapters Uh, chapter 12, I have no control over what spiritual gift I get. I don't determine what spiritual gift God gives me. God makes that decision. He's the one who determines the spiritual gifts that are given. In Romans chapter 12, we're told it's God the Father who gives spiritual gifts as he decides, as he wills. In Ephesians 4, we're told that it's God the Son who gives the spiritual gifts as he decides, as he wills. In 1 Corinthians 12, we're told it's the Holy Spirit who gives spiritual gifts as he decides, as he wills. And according to the New Testament, spiritual gifts are given on your spiritual birthday. The day you're saved, God gives you not only the Holy Spirit, which he is sometimes referred to as the gift of the Spirit, but he also gives you a spiritual gift uh, that is an equipping ministry in which you are to use in serving the people of God. I have no control over that. On the other hand, too, the Bible says in such passages like, let me just turn there real fast to Hebrews 5. He says in verse 13, For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food is for the mature who, because of practice, have trained their senses to discern good and evil. Now, before he makes that statement, he makes this statement. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, but you have need of someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. And you've come to need milk and not solid food because uh, he says you're not accustomed to the word of righteousness. You're a babe. For this time you, um, in the modern English, we have one word for you. In context, we'll discern whether it's you, singular, or you, plural, like we'd say in the South, y'all. Well, in Greek, there is a plural you, and there's a singular you, as there is in Old English, as in the King James. They had a singular you and a plural you. This is plural you. For by this time, y'all, meaning the congregation, ought to be teachers. Well, wait a minute. I thought only God can give spiritual gifts. Mm-hmm. I thought, James says, let not many of you become teachers, knowing you'll incur stricter judgment. Mm-hmm. The Bible distinguishes between the office, the gift, and the responsibility. 
And so there's a responsibility that every Christian has that he's to grow up in Christ so that he can answer some basic questions that every time he has a question, he doesn't necessarily have to run to his pastor. He can answer some basic questions about the Christian faith. That's a mark of maturity. And that's a requirement for elders in the church because they're to be mature men. They don't have to be gifted preachers, but they have to be sound in doctrine doctrine and apt to teach because that's a mark of maturity. Now, with a pastor teacher, there are some elders who uh, work hard, the Bible says, at preaching or in teaching because God's gifted them in that way. And so that's an, another thing altogether. So there's the office, there's the gift, and there's responsibility. And so what you may have is the gift of teaching, and people see that manifest, and they're blessed by it, and they assume that that means you're called to the ministry. Maybe you are. And that would be something you'd really want to seek God on and pray. But no man can call you. The call needs to come from God. And it doesn't come in some dramatic way. If you lined up a thousand preachers, there might be only a handful on one hand that you could count who would describe a dramatic call. And I'm not talking about fake preachers, and there's millions of those. I'm talking about really genuine born-again pastors. Only a handful would describe some dramatic call. Most would describe a gradual burden from God and confirmation from others that indeed you were gifted for full-time ministry, but a growing burden where you came to the point where you knew that if you were not in full-time ministry, you would be out of the will of God. So um, I hope that answers your question. God bless that man who fasted for you, especially on a cruise mm. <laughs> of all places. Amen. All you right. Know, let's... <laughs> I, I was going to say on your Wednesday night uh, spiritual gifts teaching that you're going through right now, uh, one thing struck me is that uh, there are three ways that you've indicated people know their giftedness. One, it brings them joy. That's right. Secondly, um, they see fruit from their gift. And third, uh, they get Affirmation. Affirmation from yeah, others. That, that's right. That, that's their gift. And, you know, I, I love how you say, well, you may have the spirit, the, the gift of, uh, of teaching, but others may not have the gift of listening. Right. If you think you have the gift of teaching and nobody else has the gift of listening, you probably have misunderstood the, you know, what gift it is that God has given you. And sometimes people want to have a particular gift because they think it's more important or more spiritual. And we dismissed that whole thing and unraveled that false thought. That's the world's mentality that the person up front on the platform is the most important, the most insignificant person. And not in God's economy. There are no insignificant people in the body of Christ. Now, it is true that when the church is gathered, that there are certain gifts that are to express themselves in the public worship of God's people. And that's what uh, passages like uh, 1 Corinthians 14 is teaching. Because again, God is the one who gives gifts. We have no decision. So he says, pursue love, yet desire earnestly that you may prophesy. And there it's a plural you. You all may prophesy. He's talking about when the church is assembled, the gift that needs to take preeminence, preeminence in the worship service is the preaching or prophesying gifts, because that's how the church is going to be edified and grow so that people with gifts of exhortation and in uh, t- gifts of uh, mercy and administration and serving and evangelism and other gifts like that are going to be edified so that their gift might express itself in a stronger, more mature fashion. And of course, if anybody would like to know what their spiritual gift is, they could go to your website at searchthescriptures.org 
and uh, take the spiritual gifts inventory. That's right. right. Mm -hmm. All right. We've got another live caller. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Thank you. Um, yeah, Pastor Brogy, I had a question concerning the Sabbath. Um, you know, we, we Christians celebrate the Sabbath on Sunday. Um, we believe in keeping it holy and following the God's Word on that. Um, what is your opinion on some of the uh, other opinions about the Sabbath being celebrated on Saturday and it should be celebrated on Saturday and that Christians are celebrating it on the wrong day of the week? Um, I mean, my opinion is as long as you're celebrating it and you're observing it, it doesn't matter, but I wanted your opinion on that. Well, I appreciate it. And again, my opinion's not any more valuable than anyone else's. What's important is, you know, and I understand the context of your question is what the Word of God says. That's our authority. So I don't think it is by accident that for 21 centuries, the vast majority of God's people have always worshipped on the first day of the week. Now you'll meet these Seventh-day Adventists, and of course they're trying to build a case for worshiping on the seventh day, which is Saturday. And they'll say that this was some Roman Catholic invention. That is so far field and so untrue. And anyone who knows church history knows that that is totally inaccurate and not the case. Now, it is true that the very first mention of the Sabbath is found in Genesis 2. But what's interesting is that it's not mentioned again for 2,500 years until Exodus chapter 20 in the Decalogue when God gives the Ten Commandments because the Sabbath was for the nation of Israel. In Exodus 31, uh, I think it's around verse 13, God says it's a sign between the covenant that I've made between myself and Israel. And so it is true that the Lord Jesus violated, you know, man-made Sabbath traditions that man had invented, but he did indeed honor and observe the Sabbath. But in, when the resurrection comes, the church changes, not keeping one day in seven, but they change the application of that day. All 10 commandments still apply. Some would say, well, there's only nine out of 10 that are repeated in the New Testament. That's debatable. But depending on how you understand, you know, keeping the Sabbath day is holy. Uh, it is true, however, that while I believe all ten commandments are still expressed because they're part of God's moral eternal law, that the application of those commandments has changed. We spoke a little bit about this, I think, maybe in our last Bible line. When God, for instance, says in Exodus chapter 20, you're to honor your father and your mother, that it may be well with you and that you may live long in the land, as uh, the Decalogue puts it. The Ten Commandments are recorded in two places in the Old Testament, in Exodus 20 and in Deuteronomy 5. And Deuteronomy 5 gives the expanded version of the Fifth Commandment and the promise that's attached to the Fifth Commandment. Interestingly, in the New Testament, Paul quotes the Fifth Commandment, but he changes the application of it. He says in Ephesians chapter 6, and this is really a, a powerful text of Scripture that we would do well to heed. Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, that it may be well with you. He's speaking there of the quality of your life and that you may live long. That's the longevity of your life on the earth. On the earth. No longer in the land, but on the earth in the land applied to Israel and where God's centralized people were in the land of Israel. 
But now he says on the earth, because God's people are made of every tribe and tongue and nation. They're in every part of the world. And so he extends the application to on the earth. So the tenth, uh, the fifth, uh, <clears throat> the commandment, thou shalt keep the Sabbath day holy, the fourth commandment still applies on a different day of the week. It's the same commandment, but it's a, a different application. A lot of the Puritans and Reformers referred to Sunday as the Sabbath, and that they were basically underscoring the truth that there is still one day in seven that we keep, but they acknowledged it was the first day of the week. But technically, the, the Sabbath in the Old Testament was indeed Saturday. Um, so, you know, the Lord's Day was not brought about by some Roman Catholic Church decree, but by the Lord of the Sabbath, as Jesus is called in Mark 2. He decided and dictates what day of the week his people should worship on. And what I find is every, every time that it's recorded after the resurrection— Uh, that Christ meets with the disciples on the first day of the week, whether it's in John 20 or later in John 20, a week later, eight days later, which would be Sunday to Sunday. I think it's interesting in Acts 20, the church didn't meet on the seventh day of the week, but on the first day of the week in 1 Corinthians 16, uh, Paul, when he speaks of the collection, he says it's to be done on the first day of the week. We set aside what God has prospered in our lives. And now it is interesting that when you come to the millennial kingdom that is still in the future in Exodus, uh, Ezekiel 36 and Isaiah 66, we will once again commemorate the seventh day of the week. But right now, the new creation, which is the church, commemorating Christ's finished work of redemption, we meet on the first day of the week. God the Father worked for six days, he rested. God the Son, he, he suffered for six hours, and then he rested. And um, so we commemorate it in light of the resurrection. So that's how I understand it. That's how most Christians have always understood it throughout the history of 21 centuries. I tell folks, listen, as a general rule, if it's new, it's not true. So the whole idea of Saturday worship is a new truth. It came up in the 1870s through Seventh-day Adventists, and and they even make it a test of conversion, many of them. They'll say, well, you know, the Bible says if you love me, you'll obey his commandments. And how can you say you love Christ if you don't worship on the seventh day of the week? And so they have for forever made it a test of conversion. Remember, this is the same group that started saying that Jesus had a sin nature, but just never sinned. This is the same group that denies the eternality of hell. This is the same group that teaches when a Christian dies, he sleeps in the grave. And so they have scores of doctrines that are unbiblical. So I'm not surprised that they're warped on their view of the Sabbath. All right, very good. Uh, We had a young caller who wanted to know why Jesus's birth is uh, documented in the Bible, but then you don't hear anything else about him until age 12. Well, it's a good question. Uh, A Jewish young man was considered that he came into manhood uh, right around the age of 12 or 13 when he became bar mitzvah. Bar is the uh, Hebrew word for son of, and mitzvah is the word for commandment. He becomes a son of the law or a son of the commandment. In other words, he had reached an age where God had expected him to take personal responsibility for his study of the Scripture. And so that would be a very important time in which God would 
document the coming of the Lord Jesus after his birth. His birth accounts are very important to cover in this respect in that he had to come with the right credentials. And there were certain prophecies that he were, was indeed going to fulfill. But if you really think about it in the broadest sense, there's that one incident when he's 12 But most of the Gospels and what we have written by God himself in the Bible actually deal with Christ from the time he's 30 years of age and on for three years, between between 30 and 33. And if you look at the Gospels carefully, you discover that most of the Gospels only cover the last week of his life. Take the Gospel of John, for instance. By the time you come to uh, John 11... The uh, resurrection of Lazarus, that's about a week, uh, about 10 days before um, his crucifixion, Uh, four or five days before the triumphal entry on what we call Palm Sunday. So John 11 through 21 is just on the last week of his life. If you are in uh, Matthew's gospel, um, again, you know, starting in Matthew the end of 18 all the way to the end, that's the last week of Christ's life. Um, if you were in Luke's gospel, uh, starting around Luke, right around at Luke 19, he's in Jericho. And if you remember that final week, he comes from Jericho to the Mount of Olives. Actually, from Jericho to Bethany, he does the miracle on Lazarus and raising him from a dead that a few short days later he comes to the Mount of Olives and makes his triumphal entry. So with the uh, conversion of Zacchaeus down in Jericho all the way to the end of Luke's gospel, that's just one week, one week of his life. And so it is in Mark's gospel. So even when you look at the gospels, most of them cover one week of his life, uh, the majority of them. And so and um, 90 9% of the Gospels cover his three-year ministry. I, I, this is how I would answer your question um, in this respect. Uh, it says this at the end of John's Gospel, and there were many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that were written. God had to stop somewhere, and he didn't make a Bible that was so big that you needed a, a wheelbarrow to carry it around in. We've got enough truth here to deal with, and um, so he gave us what we needed. And I, I don't know how else you could really respond to that question, but it's a good question and a thoughtful one by a young caller. All right, let's go to the next one. Our next caller would like you to explain from Malachi 3.10 what exactly it means there shall not be enough room to receive it or there shall not be room enough to receive it. Well, in Malachi, God speaks on the subject of tithing. And I do believe that tithing has application for today. And the majority of God's men throughout the church have believed that. Uh, I've asked people before, I said, show me a single commentary before, you know, 1900 that says tithing was simply an Old Testament right that had no application for today. Someone said to me, Recently, they sent me a quote on Spurgeon, and I said, you misunderstood Spurgeon, and I sent them back three other quotes by Spurgeon that clearly affirm that he taught that tithing had full application for today, and the quote that they sent me was the fact that 
Spurgeon was highlighting that we having a fuller understanding of grace have even a higher motivation than the Old Testament Jew who understood grace but not in the fullest sense and that we have the full revelation of God. My point is, is that God's people throughout the ages have seen tithing as something that was not just simply for the nation of Israel, but it was for God's people throughout the ages, that it's part of God's moral and eternal law. Ever before the law came through Moses, Abraham tithed. Abraham is the first one to tithe. Why didn't Abraham give 3% of his income? Why didn't Abraham give uh, 80% of the spoils that God blessed him with? Why not 100%? Well, it's inconceivable to me that the father of the faithful, the friend of God, as he's called three times in the scriptures, did not consult God. If he's the father of the faithful and the faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of God, indeed, while the first verse of scripture had not yet been penned, God spoke in many portions and in many ways to his servants. And I have no doubt that Abraham consulted God and God gave him wisdom as to what he should do. So Abraham gave a tenth of all that he had to Melchizedek. And Melchizedek is an Old Testament picture of Christ. Some think he's the pre-incarnate Christ. And I can respect that interpretation. I don't see that, but I can respect it. Um, But whether he's a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ or whether he's a type or an illustration of Christ changes nothing. Abraham, in essence, when he gave a tenth, was giving ultimately to the Lord Jesus. So Abraham commences it. Jacob continues it. Malachi will command it. Jesus in Matthew will commend it, and we're not to cancel it. It's part of God's moral eternal law. And so God gives his people a challenge, and there are uh, the, the form of Malachi. Unfortunately, many times the only time Malachi is taught is when uh, a pastor wants to speak on tithing. Uh, there are some wonderful questions that Malachi anticipates that the people will ask. And he goes through each of the questions like they're asking them. Um, I have loved you, says the Lord. How have you loved us, you ask? And then he says, here's how I loved you. And so there's these questions all the way through the book that God answers. And he asks the question here, will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed thee? So again, it's the same form. A question is asked, a rebuttal is given, a comeback is given, and a second question is asked, and then the comeback, final comeback is given. God says, in tithes and offerings, you're cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house, and test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing, until it overflows. Then I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it may not destroy the fruits of the ground. Nor will your vine in the field cast its grapes, says the Lord of hosts. And all the nations will call you blessed for you shall be a delightful land, says the Lord of hosts. You might want to listen to some of my sermons on tithing if you want really a detailed answer. And if you go to search the scriptures, all one word, dot org, click on Malachi and then click on this particular message. Uh, I think it was uh, 65 minutes long. And so you can listen to a more detailed answer. But let me just say that God doesn't promise to make you rich. It's clear from both Testaments that not all of God's people were rich. In fact, uh, sometimes God in his wisdom is very careful not to make some of us rich because he knows that our heart can gravitate in the wrong direction. 
there's very few people that God can trust with uh, a lot of wealth. And so you don't see scores of God's people as rich people, contrary to the prosperity theology of our day that basically says God wants to make us all rich. That's just not true. But God does promise to meet our needs where we are not lacking, where our needs are indeed met. And one way in which God does that is through the obedience of the tithe. Now, I have a whole course that I teach on money management, and I walk through the theology of money and and how to manage God's money wisely. And let me just say parenthetically that there's more to the management of money than just tithing. That's one component. So some people say, well, pastor, I tithe, then I don't understand why my finances are in such a mess. Well, because of all these other principles over here you have violated in the realm of finances. Tithing can't be isolated from all that God has taught on the subject of money. And then sometimes, the scripture is clear, God will discipline us through the physical realm, whether it's our health, though, of course, not all Health problems are related to divine discipline. And sometimes God disciplines us through our finances. Because of our disobedience, God knows how to speak to us. And he deals with us in accordance with our money because he knows that's what's going to ring our bell and get our attention and get us on our face in an attitude of repentance before the living God. So again, that's a short answer, but you might want to just start by listening to the sermon on tithing. And if you really want to do a full-blown study, listen to the course on the theology of money, which is on searchthescriptures.org. And in that course, there's an appendix on prosperity theology, which you can also listen to. And I go through the teaching of the prosperity theologians, direct quotations from their works, what they're saying, uh, the passages that they are using out of context You can make the Bible mean a lot of things if you take a verse out of its context. They're famous especially for quoting Job, and they'll say, hey, it's right here in the book of Job. Yeah, they're quoting Job's enemies, and at the end of the book, God says he's not pleased with the counsel that Job's enemies gave. But, you know, to the naive and sloppy reader of Scripture, they might quickly embrace a verse of Scripture out of its context. So that might be helpful to you as well as you explore this whole area. Let's go to the next question. All right. Our next listener would like to know when exactly does salvation occur? At baptism, at confession, or when you start speaking in tongues? Well, um, let me respond by inviting this caller and anyone else listening that if you're unsure of this question, then it tells me that you don't really understand what the gospel is. So I'm glad you're asking this. And let me answer it in one of two ways. You could go to our website at searchthescriptures.org and click on, would you like to know God as your friend? Would you like to have God as your friend? And you can download it, the audio version. You can live stream the message uh, in video format. And I will carefully walk you through the answer to that question. If you want a more personal approach, you could come to one of our Thursday night meetings, Meet the Pastor. And at Meet the Pastor on Thursday nights when we hold it, and we will be holding it this Thursday, uh, I go through the core values of Community Bible Church. And to do that, I give an overview of the whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation. 
And so I pass out a little booklet entitled, Would You Like to Know God as Your Friend? Would You Like to Have God as Your Friend? And we go through what the Bible teaches concerning salvation. So if someone is listening to me and you're not really sure that if this were your last day upon the earth that you would go to heaven, then you ought to come. Uh, Someone says, well, do you have to know that you're saved in order to go to heaven? The Bible answer is yes. If someone does not know that they are definitely going to heaven, they have sincere reason to doubt whether or not they've ever met the living God. And let me equally say that there are many people who come to the Thursday night meeting. One of the questions in the survey that they fill out when they come in is on a scale of zero to 100, zero, I have no idea, 100, I have no doubt. How certain are you that if you were to die, you go to heaven? I'd say on average, 20 to 30% every week. We had about 15 last week and four or five people said, I'm 100%. But they were, before we ended the session, discovered they were 100% wrong. One lady said, I'm 100%. Why should God let you into heaven? Why are you sure uh, that you would go to heaven? Because I'm a good person. Uh, That won't make it. So that would be an example of someone who's 100% wrong. So if you're thinking baptism has something to do with salvation, it tells me you don't understand the plan of salvation. Baptism has nothing to do with saving you. And anyone who teaches that you must be baptized in order to be saved is someone who is teaching a different gospel. Baptism is a symbol. It is an emblem. It is a picture. The word means to immerse. It's a picture of death, burial, and resurrection. Uh, So when one is immersed, brought down into the water and up again, what they are saying by symbol is, is that my faith is in the death, burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You don't come in contact with the blood at baptism. That's a false teaching, baptismal regeneration. The Bible teaches after you are saved, you are to be baptized. The Ethiopian eunuch said, look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? And And Philip the evangelist tells the eunuch, well, it's conditional. Only if you believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And he comes back, he says, yes, I believe with all my heart. And so Philip ordered the chariot to stop. And he went down into the water and then baptized him. He didn't go to the edge of the water and then sprinkled a little water on the top of his head or poured a cup over him. No, he went down into the water and then he immersed him. Again, that's what the word means. It has a religious connotation. And we take a little baby and we sprinkle a few drops on him. We call it baptism. The New Testament would never call that baptism. Now, there is a word for sprinkling in the Koine Greek of the New Testament era, ratizo, and it's never used in reference to this ordinance. Only baptizo, that means to immerse. And so baptism doesn't save you. Speaking in tongues doesn't save you or make you a Christian. Anyone who told you that is an error. And you might want to come to our spiritual gifts course. In fact, this Wednesday we'll deal with the abuses of spiritual, the misuse and abuses of spiritual gifts. Every week stands on itself. And then in a few weeks after we see a couple of musicals on Wednesday night, we will come back and we will talk about the sign gifts of the New Testament. We'll look at tongues, interpretation of tongues, healing and miracles. And we'll promote that particular week as we approach it. So I think the starting place for you would be go online, listen, or come on Thursday night. And if neither of those work for you, you can call me directly at the church and I'll sit down personally with you and I'll walk you through the plan of salvation so you can get an answer to this. All right. Our next listener would like to know if the sons of God of Genesis 6 verses 1 through 4 are in fact angels and came into the daughters of men and bore children unto them. How do you reconcile that with 
what Jesus said in Matthew twenty-two thirty regarding angels neither marrying nor being given in marriage? Well, it's a, it's a fair question, and let me just see if I can respond to it. It says here in Genesis, Now it came about when men began to multiply in the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God, and the term is b'nai Elohim in Hebrew, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and took wives for themselves, whomever they choose. chose. Now, it's interesting. Every time the phrase b'nai Elohim or sons of God is used in the Old Testament, it's always used to refer to angels. Uh, for instance, in Job 38, it says, the sons of God sang and shouted for joy when God made the earth. Uh, you find the same expressions in Job 1 and Job 2, where the sons of God are identified clearly for us as angels. Um, you know, even uh, the king, Nebuchadnezzar, uh, when he sees a fourth man in the uh, fire, in the form of the fourth, is like the son of God. Uh, it's B'nai Elohim. Really, you could translate it like a son of the gods. He, he thinks it's an angel. And it may indeed be an angel, the pre-incarnate angel, the angel of the Lord. Um, but in the Bible, sons of God, B'nai Elohim in the Old Testament, is always used of those whom God created. And he created a fixed number once and for all time. I find it interesting, too, when you come into the New Testament, believers born again are called children of God, or they're called, like in Romans 8, sons of God. In the Bible, only those who by a direct and divine act of creation are called sons of God. So whether it's the angels, they come by a direct act of creation. God created a fixed number of angels, never, ever, ever to be created again. And God, by a fixed act of new creation, we call it regeneration, when we are born again, at that moment, as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become sons of God. Adam, by the way, is the only other person who's called a son of God in the genealogy in Luke's gospel. And again, we're not surprised because he's a direct creation of God. Now, I have a whole message on this uh, in Genesis 6. If you go to searchthescriptures.org and click on the Genesis icon, it will show you about, I I forgot, 50-some messages I preached in the book of Genesis. And click on Genesis 6. Um, I think I probably stopped here at verse 6. But in that, I walk through who are these angels. Now, it is true that sometimes people quote Matthew 22, 30, where Jesus taught that in heaven believers are like um, angels in the sense that they neither marry nor are given in marriage. Now, he doesn't say that we become angels. And a lot of non-Christians, they'll say, well, he's an angel now up in heaven now that he's dead. No, God doesn't make people angels when they die. He says we're like the angels. We don't become angels in that when we go to heaven, we are like them and that we neither marry nor are given in marriage. Angels don't marry other angels. Um, we do know, however, that angels can materialize in bodily form. In fact, every time an angel appears in Scripture, they appeal in male form. We know from passages like Genesis 18 that these angels who can come in human male form can take in food and drink. There's an example of that in Genesis 18 when they have an encounter with Abraham. In Genesis 19, the men of Sodom wanted to have relations 
with the angels who had come into Lot's house. And Lot recognized that this was a very real possibility, so much so that he foolishly offered them his own daughters. Um, So angels can come in human form, and while they don't procreate with other angels to create little angel babies, there was a fallen group of angels that the New Testament highlights that I walked through from Second Peter and Jude and First Peter, and we looked carefully at all these passages together. The people in Jude's day and Peter's day understood who this group were, who had left their abode the way God naturally made them, just like the people in Sodom and Gomorrah left their natural abode. There was some kind of sex sin that they committed that could be paralleled to what the people of Sodom did. The people of Sodom did what was unnatural. These angels did what was unnatural, and therefore they are kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the day of judgment, as Jude describes. These are angels who, unlike those that are pictured in Daniel 10, unlike those that Paul describes in Ephesians 6, have no ability to wage war against God's people because they are in eternal chains. They are in a place called Tartarus. And if you remember, even between the death and resurrection of Christ, while he was in that cold tomb, in his spirit, he went and made proclamation to the spirits who are now in prison. So there's a group of spirit beings, a certain classification of angels that are in a place, Tartarus, it's translated hell, by Pete uh, in the English Bible, but it's a certain section of hell that this certain group of heinous fallen angels went to. Anyway, um, it's a great question. So let's go to your next question here on the Bible line. I think we got time maybe for one more. What do you say, Rick? All right, Angie uh, writes, we've got a community uh, Bible study group and are being asked to consider a study of Philippians presented by Bill Hybels. Is it okay to use his studies or is he going down an overly seeker-sensitive path in his views? Well, you know, let me just say Bill Hybels, you know, he's a believer. He's a brother in Christ. You're going to meet him in heaven. He's not some, you know, raving lunatic or heretic or anything like that. Uh, He has the gospel. But there is indeed some methodologies that he has assumed at Willow Creek that most, I think, in historical Christianity would consider quite unbiblical. And there are some theological persuasions that he embraces that I think are unbiblical. And he's going to share those. He's got to. In the opening line of Philippians, he writes to the deacons and elders who are in Philippi. Well, you know, el- the last time I looked on his website, I think he had like 11 elders, six of whom were women. So he embraces an egalitarian point of view in that realm of theology. Well, we've only started. So, um, I think there's a lot better studies than the one that Heibel has on Philippians, and I would go somewhere else, but I wouldn't go to his book. Anyway, we're out of time for today. I'm glad that you could join us for this hour with the Bible line. If we didn't get to your question, God willing, we'll get to it next time. Have a great day. May you walk closely with Jesus Christ. 